The title of the message this morning has to do with stress. Stress. Who can relate? If you didn't raise your hand, you're lying. <laughs> I'll call you out right now. Yeah, I'll tell you right now. Stress is one of the most prominent things in any time, in any place, in human history. You think it's a new thing. It's been around a long time. If you don't believe me, read the book of Psalms. The whole 150 chapters of Psalms is filled with different kinds of stresses. But we're going to focus on one particular aspect of it and the challenge to get out of stress. Write this down. You're going to want to look at it, put it on a post-it note, and put it on your refrigerator. It was a great revealing for me. To get out of stress, you have to get out of Gethsemane. To get out of stress, you have to get out of Gethsemane. Because Gethsemane sounds like a beautiful place. I'm, I'm going to give you some background about what Gethsemane actually is, what it means. When we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, garden means protected or cultivated place. That's what a garden is, a protected or cultivated place. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And the reason why it's called the oil press is because the Garden of Gethsemane is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And where there are olives being grown, there are olive trees. And where there are olives and olive trees, there is an olive press because you cannot have olive oil without an olive press. Kind of like you go into an apple orchard, some of the old ones, they still have limestone uh, circles where they would put a press and a mule and walk that thing around in a circle a dozen times or more to crush the apples in the apple orchard. The same thing in the same similar way was done in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was an oil press in the midst of the orchard. Now there are wild olive trees there and there are cultivated olive trees there. Some of the olive trees that we see there today are 2,000, the root system are 2,000 years old. Yeah. This place is a sacred place. Yeah. Culturally, it is respected. Visually, it is appealing. Mm -hmm. When you get into the presence of the olive trees and you get near the trees where they believe Jesus prayed, you can almost feel the midst of the anointing in the air. Yeah. The very place that we're describing is the origin of the olive oil or the anointing oil. So you might say that the anointing begins in the tree and in the root. Yes. So why leave? Sounds like a great place to be. Most of the time when we enter into a situation, we think it's a pleasant place. It may look great from the outside. It has appeal by our eyesight. It feels good when we're in the midst of it. In the daytime, it's bright and sunshiny, but in the dark, it changes. Olive oil has been used to anoint and bless since the order of Melchizedek, which means, being translated, my king is my righteousness. Olive oil is of high regard. It can be put in for food. It can be put in with different spices to have a different fragrance. It was used to be turned into a, an especially high costly oil for anointing and be placed inside of an alabaster box and it was worth 
At that day, over 300 pieces of gold. You can do the math and translate the figures for today. It's expensive. So why is it that I'm telling you to get out of the place where it is created? Why is it that I'm trying to relay stress to Gethsemane and telling you to run from it? Sounds like a pleasant place. The Garden of Gethsemane, depending on what time of day you're in it, will reflect what kind of anointing you will get. Jesus had gone to this garden many times to pray, to reflect, I'm sure to look at the trees. It's told in the scripture, I believe in Mark, that Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus whenever he betrayed him because he had visited the same area many times. He had picked a place in the orchard where he could escape from not only the crowd of people, but his disciples. Remember, whenever he went to pray, he went ahead of his disciples and said, y'all stay back here, I'm going to go up here. Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus whenever he betrayed him. But on this particular night of prayer, this was no normal night for Jesus. Jesus began to understand the unveiling of his own physical demise. Yeah. And he tells his disciples about it in Mark chapter 14, if you want to turn with me to there. And we're going to start in verse 6. 14 and 6 and go all the way to verse 9. Say amen when you've got it. Mark 14, 6 through 9. And Jesus begins to tell his disciples about this demise that is coming his way whenever a woman bringing an alabaster box comes into the presence of Jesus. And she takes the alabaster box and she breaks it open and she anoints Jesus' head. And this is a, a costly item. This is like taking a, well, what would be the equivalent <coughs> that we could compare it to? <coughs> I don't have a modern comparison. We don't treat other people like this anymore. I hate to say it like that, but we don't. But this woman takes this highly prized oil which was pressed from the Mount of Olives, the very place where he is about to go. She breaks the alabaster box open. She pours oil on his head. The disciples begin to murmur against her because it's so expensive. They said you could have sold that to, to feed the poor. Why did you more or less wait? They're saying, why did you waste that on Jesus? We could have sold that and fed the poor. And Jesus is sitting right there. Good way to tick off the Savior. Talk about me right in front of me. Okay. So what does he do? He rebukes him. He says, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. He's looking at his own disciples, the twelve that has walked with him. They know how valuable this oil is. She breaks it open to anoint his head, and he's offended at them, saying, Why are you getting after her for treating me good? But they had no idea what was coming up for Jesus. But Jesus had already had a revelation. For ye have the poor with you always. Big revelation there. Ye have the poor with you always. Whensoever ye will, ye may do, good, do them good. But ye have not always. But, ye, but me ye have not always. Well, reword and retranslate. He basically says, you're going to always have the poor with you, and you can do them good whenever you want, but you have not always done me good. 
Jesus is saying that to his disciples. Ye hath done, she hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Wait a minute. They just sat down with Jesus. He gets his head anointed by this expensive oil. And Jesus looks at them after she had anointed his head and he's saying, she came to anoint me so that I could be buried. Could you imagine the impact that that had on the 12? Everything that he had said up to this point had come to pass. And he's looking at them saying, I'm getting ready to die. And she came to anoint me so that I could die. What a concept to know the timing of your own death and then to report it. Jesus knew he was going to enter into a time and space of great sorrow. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He tells us in the same chapter, verse 18, And as they sat down and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. So now we're in this garden setting that is so beautiful. The orchard where the anointing oil is. And that same oil that was pressed from those same trees is being used to anoint Jesus' head so he can die. And he knows that he's going to be betrayed. And he looks at the people that he's eating with and says, one of you is going to do it. The stress alone from those two things is enough to make all of us shiver. If you really put it into perspective, to know that you're going to be betrayed and to know that that precious oil that's being put on your head is not to make you look good or smell good for the living, but so that you can enter the company of the dead. But that's not enough because he's God and so he sees all things. He's completely aware that he's going to be alone in this journey. In verse 27, as we skip through the chapter, it says, And Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So not only are we in a beautiful garden in the daytime where the anointing oil is being made and workers are laboring and sweating during the day and they're, they're entering into a task. Now we're into the night of the supper and we're told that Jesus is going to die. We're told that he's going to be betrayed by his own mouth. And we're told that he's going to be alone. That as soon as the shepherd is smitten, that everyone around him is going to run from him. Of course, Peter argues with him. And he says, there's no way that I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go and die with you. And he looks right at him and says, where I go, you cannot go. But Peter, being one who wants to be faithful, argues with the Lord. I think he's one of the only disciples that, you know, there was one other time somebody else argued with him, but not like Peter, not like we remember with Peter. He says, there's no way. Peter was even the one that spoke up on the Mount of Transfiguration whenever Elijah and Moses were standing there with Jesus, and Peter's the one that's bold enough to open his mouth while grown folks are talking. 
Peter's bold, and he's saying, I'm bold. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw your, your glorified body. I know you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the anointing one. I'm the one that called you out and knew who you were before anybody else knew who you were. There's no way I'm going to leave you. There's no way I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm going to go die with you because I know exactly who you are. And Jesus looks at him and says, you can't go where I'm going because you're not called to be what I am. But how is it that we sometimes find ourselves in these situations where we're much like Jesus instead of like Peter? We know exactly what is coming down the pike. We have the discernment to know something bad is coming. We know that we're going to do it alone. And we're probably going to be talked bad about while it's happening. We're going to be betrayed by the very people that are closest to us. And we're sitting there dealing with one weight being stacked on our shoulders after another. One stack of pressure after another. One murmuring word after another. One troubling piece of news after another. And the compounding stress and the compounding situation gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And now not only is the light bill not paid, but there are late fees and you're behind a month and the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Not only did you forget to go to the grocery store, but you forgot to get the cat food and you forgot to get the dog food and they're hungry scratching at the back door and the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Not only did you forget about the kid at school, but now you've got to drive back into town because he's standing there in front of the schoolhouse and you didn't know where they were or what they were doing, realizing that your mind is so plagued with so much going on, you're forgetting even your own children, and the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier. So many times our mind gets clouded with the stresses of this world because we are in full realization of what is going on around us, just like Jesus was as he sat in the midst of the garden completely aware that his circumstances were about to overcome him, completely aware that the changes that were about to happen in his life were not going to be good for him. They were going to be terrible. And there was not a thing he could do about it. Just like there are many times we look at our lives and say, this is terrible, and there's not a thing I can do about it. And the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Now, the level of stress, the level of sorrow, the level of pain that Jesus enters into is not anything like, well, it's so rare that it takes a doctor to identify it. Luke, chapter 22. Luke is the only gospel writer that is a physician. He's an educated man. And he experiences this night at Gethsemane through different eyes. Kind of like mom is the pastor, but she's also the nurse. And she'll tell you, you can be healed by Jesus, but Tylenol will help you too. Because there's the physical medicine and there's the spiritual medicine. And the kind of stress, the kind of burden that Jesus experiences on this night is something that changes his physical body. It gets to the point where he experiences hemohydosis. 
meaning that the capillaries underneath his skin, because of the emotional stress that he is going through, burst. And Luke describes it like this. Chapter 22, verse 42. We're going to read 42 through 44. Jesus saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Focus on that. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. From verse 42 to 43, it does not describe any other person around Jesus. He's completely alone, yet he is in agony. Nowhere before in this chapter, or the chapters before it, did Jesus face any physical abuse. It was just, his head was just anointed with precious oil. He's not being hurt by any physical man. He hasn't been beaten by anybody yet. He has gone through the Last Supper. He's drank his final cup. He's separated the disciples. He called out a few to come with him a certain distance and separated himself even farther. He is completely alone in the midst of a beautiful garden, and he knows exactly what is coming his direction, even in the midst of the garden. He looks at his father and says, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. He's talking about the final cup of the Passover, not any other kind of cup, but the final cup of the Passover. Hallelujah. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So here we have in one instant a God-man moment in Jesus' ministry. When he was God, he understood that what he was doing was the final cup of the Passover so that man could be redeemed. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine will be done. He's saying, let this thing pass from me as a man. But as a God, he said, let thy will be done, not mine. He was both divine and human in the same moment and the same time. Even though he was endued with the spiritual power of God living inside his soul because his soul was God, he still possessed a human fleshly body that could feel pain, that could feel sorrow, that could feel agony, that could feel depression and rejection and hurt. So everything that you feel while you're in your pressured state in your stressful state Jesus experienced it and probably more so even in this one moment than you have ever in your entire life because he didn't just feel your stress he felt the entire world stress in that one spot so where is this agony coming from that Jesus is experiencing he's talking with God in the midst of a beautiful garden his head has been anointing I believe that, that that moment of stress and agony is the weight of love that he had for us. Yeah. I have been more heavy in my heart about someone that I love yeah. more than I have ever been heavy in my heart about someone that I despise. 
I have been more sorrowful in my heart about someone that I love than I have ever given the time of day about someone that I despise. So I don't believe that it was the weight of sin which separates us from God. It's the weight of love that brought him closer to God because his physical body could not handle the sin of the world and nor could it even handle the love of the world. Oftentimes we think that he's being purged with the sin in the middle of the garden, but that does not line up with what the nature of the garden is. The garden is an oil press for anointing. God was not anointed for sin. He was anointed for love. So the weight and agony of love that was in Jesus' heart is what began the stress because he knew what he had to do for his beloved. And the pain that was in his heart was not about how much evil the world does, but the pain that was in his heart was with how much compassion he had to have on it. Because in order to counterbalance what we would do later, he had to give up a great cost, his body. He understood that he couldn't just speak the words, but he had to die to fulfill the words. And so the time and space in this garden, as we move on to verse 43, it says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. I would say that Jesus and this angel knew each other very well. They had had many conversations with each other. The term guardian angel, where we think that as children there's one angel assigned to us that follows us all our days. I tell you, I've got more than one angel surrounding me because I've got more than one devil attacking me. Hallelujah. But I'm sure as Jesus being this God-man, he has experienced many conversations with this angel. And if Jesus has the weight of love, you know that the angels have the weight of love. And that angel being sent down had compassion on him. It was like a friend to him because there was no man in the garden that could stay up with him and endure the kind of anointing that was being placed on him in the place where the anointing originates. Only an angel could experience that kind of anointing because he was in the place of the origin of anointing. Only an angel could walk into a place of that kind of power because it was in the place of the origin of power. The power and the anointing that it took to save the world all the way back to the order of Melchizedek was being fulfilled in the Garden of Gethsemane and there was only one God-man and one angel that could endure that kind of anointing anointing in one time, in one place, in one season, and the pressure and the power and the love that was in that place was so great and so mighty that it caused his heart and his body to hurt because he loved the world so much that only an angel could endure that kind of anointing. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And as a gospel writer, Luke gets into describing the level of power, the level of agony, the level of anointing, 
It says in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, meaning the more that he felt love for you, he prayed harder for you. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground, meaning that his emotions, see this kind of condition is so rare because it's based on your emotional status, not necessarily on your physical status. And most of the time, whenever it happens, it is unexplainable. It cannot be determined the cause because you cannot determine what an emotion is through the body except by what effects it has on the body. And it takes a very certain kind of person to have that level of compassion to be so endured through the emotions that they sweat drops of blood. And it took a special kind of man, a special kind of God-man to have that kind of anointing to enter into that emotional of a state to where he could feel that much love so that even the drops of blood came rolling down from his head. It was not only documented through his heart, but it was documented through his body. And only an educated man, a doctor, could tell you how much stress, how much endurance Jesus was going through before he was ever named to the tree hallelujah so what kind of effects does stress have on you headaches eye twitching back pain raise your hand if you experience any of those three weight gain or weight loss dramatic inflammation High blood pressure, hair loss, acne, stomach pain, low immunity, insomnia, joint pain. Any of you experience any of those? All of them. I mean, let me make sure. Okay, so I tell you what. Put your hand down if you haven't experienced any of this. Everybody raise your hand. We'll just put it all together. So if you don't experience any of these, you can put your hand down. How's that? Headaches, eye twitching, depression, back pain, weight gain or loss, inflammation, blood pressure, hair loss, acne, low immunity. Everybody's hand's pretty well up. Okay. Stomach pain, insomnia, joint pain. Yeah, y'all are included. This message must be for you. <laughs> Stress can physically change the way that the brain processes information. It can rearrange the paths of electricity that make your cognitive thought possible. It can make it so that you process the world completely different than what you had processed it before you experienced the stress. So from what I'm seeing, all of you have a Gethsemane in your own backyard, maybe in your living room, possibly in your bedroom, or on your car on the way to work or while you're at work. Every single one of you seem to be in the Garden of Gethsemane because you are all telling me, and I'm not a doctor, not like Luke, but I can Google what the effects of stress are. And Google tells me that it's all this, and all of you raised your hand, so the chances are I'd say you're all stressed. You would all agree. Well, good, I just had to ask you. So how am I going to tell you to get out of Gethsemane? I'll bet you're all ready for this one, ain't you? 
guess what? This is not a happy message. You're not going to like what I'm going to tell you next. You have to go through your cross to get out of Gethsemane. There is no way around it. Jesus looked at the Father and said, if there be any way that this cup pass from me, do it. But he also said, your will be done in my life, not my own. He didn't say, free pass to heaven? <laughs> he could have. 10,000 leagues of angels, take me off this tree? He had the ability. Instead, he endured the very thing that destroyed him, but it was the symbol that made him what he was after he had completed it. If Jesus had never gotten on the cross, it was by volunteer. You realize he's God-man. He volunteered to be on the cross. He did it by choice. He put himself in the position to fulfill scriptures so that he would be beaten. He made sure of it. He blasphemed the high priest according to their law and said, I'm fulfilling this and you're going to beat me for it and I'm doing it on purpose and there's not a thing you can do about it. He had full control knowing that he had manipulated the system into what he needed it to be so he could fulfill the promise that it would take to fulfill your life. And he took his cross on purpose. It wasn't forced on him. He didn't, nobody made him do it. He looked at his father and said, is there any other way to save these people? I love them so much that I'm sweating blood, but if there's another way to do this, let me know. So the only way to get out of your Gethsemane is to look directly at your cross and say, give it to me. Put it on my shoulders. I'm ready. Let me carry the load that you've designed for me. Because the revelation is, is that you do not carry this cross alone. Because even Jesus, the God-man, Manifested in the flesh. The one that loves us so much, he could not carry his own cross all the way to Golgotha. He had to have help. Just as God looked at man and said, I'm going to leave you for a while, but I'm going to send the Holy Ghost and the Comforter to be with you. So that even if there is not another person who can help you with your stuff, there's going to be a Holy Ghost that's going to help you endure through it. Hallelujah. So how is it that you're going to make a way where there seems to be no way, God? How is it you're going to pick me up out of the middle of my mess, Lord? How am I going to get out of Gethsemane? By receiving exactly what God is dealing to you. You say, what is he dealing to me? What is he giving me? Look at your stress. What kind of problems do you have? Are people betraying you? Are they talking behind your back? Are people condemning you? Are you being put in situations where you feel like you have no victory? Are you in a place where financially you're being burdened? Where mentally you're being burdened? Where physically you're being burdened? Where emotionally you're being burdened? Good. You're in the middle of Gethsemane. Get ready for your cross because the very thing that tries to break you will be the same thing that makes you. Yeah. It will be the symbol of your victory. The thing that tried to destroy you will be the thing that everybody remembers you by. The thing that tried to tear you down will be the thing that you hold up as a sign that says, I'm victorious. Right. Right. Thank you, Jesus. 
But you have to get out of Gethsemane to get a hold of your cross. You have to get out of the worrying stage, the fear stage, to get a hold of your cross. You have to say, there's Golgotha. There's a place where I'm going to be tore down, and I'm going to meet it head on. And we say, well, why is it that Jesus is looking at us and inviting us all to die? He looked at his disciples and they said the same thing. If you want to join me this night, pick up your cross and walk with me. Let's all go die. And I believe if all 12 of them would have been laid in a tomb, he would have raised them all. Because whenever God came out of the ground, he wasn't the only one that jumped out of the grave. It said that the loved ones of the children of Israel walked out of the tombs when Jesus walked out of his tomb. Which means that in every level of death that came three days before, there was ten times that amount of life that erupted from the ground. So for every level of destruction that your stress takes you to, there's going to be ten times, tenfold the amount of power, love, and anointing that lifts you out of it. But you've got to carry your cross before you can get out of the grave. Hallelujah. So you say, Lord, how is it that I'm going to endure? How is it that I'm going to make this happen? What is it that I have to do to be successful? You've got to let go and let the will of God be the teacher of your life. Oftentimes, the scribes and the Pharisees and the traditional Jews would marvel at those filled by the Holy Ghost because they could do things according to the Spirit, not according to the law. Pastor Dave and I had this conversation a few days ago. You are not fulfilling the law that is written. You're fulfilling the law of the Spirit. The only way to fulfill the law of the Spirit is to have a relationship with the Spirit. The only way to have a relationship with the Spirit is to have communication with the Spirit. The only way to communicate with the Spirit is to open your mouth and to speak out. Remember that your words are eternal. That whatsoever you should bind on the earth should be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you should loose on the earth should be loosed in heaven. If you're looking at your situation and saying, that person is impossible, there's nothing anybody's going to do with them, they're worthless and they're trash, that's exactly what you're going to get about them because your words spoke it out and you prophesied it in the moment that you said it. But if you say that child is redeemed by the blood, saved by grace, blessed by the anointing, pulled up, heaped up, shaken down and run over, you just let loose on heaven and... You run loose on earth, and they're both relating to each other, and you're about to fulfill the prophecy, whether or not you even know you're prophesying. Just as the spirit of victory walks with the spirit and the saints of God, the spirit of sarcasm walks with the devil. Oh, y'all. You speak sarcastically about somebody, you're prophesying, not prophesying, but your words are eternal. And if you're turning it loose on the earth, you're turning it loose in heaven. And what you speak out over someone on the earth is what's going to be heard in heaven. And if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, God's going to honor your words. So if you curse somebody on the earth, you're cursing them in heaven. And if you're filled with the Holy Ghost and they're not, God's going to take record of it. And things are going to be turned loose on them. I'm getting into some spirituality y'all don't want to address, but I'm addressing it. 
because somebody spoke life over you and somebody else spoke death over you. Somebody promised over you and somebody condemned you. Thank God there were more prayers of promise for those of us who are saved rather than curses of death for those of them who have not made it. So if you're looking at your process, if you're looking at your Gethsemane, if you're looking at your condition and you're saying, this thing is not going to work, don't expect to have any victory because you don't have enough faith in yourself to believe in it. But if you say, my God is able, my God is faithful, my God is true, and to the beginning and the end, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the maker of all things. Wherever the right, wherever the footsteps of a righteous man are foreordained of God, you start speaking blessings over your condition, you might be able to carry your cross. Hallelujah. There's a big difference between prophesy and prophesy. You have to understand that each person is in the midst of either going to the garden, being in the garden, carrying a cross, being beaten down, being raised up, and doing the same thing, rinse, reach, right over, and repeat. Because we are constantly going into Gethsemane and carrying a cross, and then being beat down and raised back up. It's a process that some of us have to do daily just to look in the mirror. It's a process some of us have to do monthly just to pay the bills. It's a process that some of us have to do yearly just to survive. I'm telling you that you enter in and out of Gethsemane constantly, whether you realize it or not. But once it clicks in your head that you're in the middle of that mess, you've got to say, where's the cross that I have to bear to get out of this situation? How do I fix this? What do I have to do to endure this? Where's my victory at, Hallelujah. God speaks to us moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour. He sends us God winks. He sends us a $43 shofar that's a $300 shofar. He sends us a free $40,000 organ sitting in the middle of a basement. He sends us God winks constantly. He sends us people in our lives that say, I don't know if you realize this or not, but I appreciate what you're doing. He constantly communicates to us and he says, the same love that I had for you in the garden is the same love that I have for you today. The same blood that fell from my head before it was pulled from my body is the same blood that I sweat for you today. They didn't have to beat the blood out of Jesus. Jesus was producing it himself. He had shed his own blood by his own love, not by the hand of man before... Oh! Hey! It said that the blood would atone, and he didn't have to have man take the blood from him. He gave it freely. We think that they had to beat the blood from Jesus, but he sweat it out for us, and he already atoned for us before he ever made it to the... Whoa! Before he ever made it to the cross, he had already atoned for us in the garden. Before he died, he atoned for you in the garden before he was crucified. He atoned for you in the garden before he was beaten because the blood fell from his head and it wasn't a sprinkling. It was a great drops of blood in the midst of the garden, in the origin of the anointing, in the middle of the power and the prayer. Woo! 
So you think that you don't have victory in your garden? You have already been atoned for in your garden. Hallelujah. Glory. 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 Hallelujah. You think in the middle of your mess that you don't have victory? The blood covers you in the garden. It waits for you in the garden. It waits for you in the anointing. It's already there. The blood is on the stone. The blood is on the ground. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Somebody bless God for about 10 seconds. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love the word hallelujah, but I'm going to start exercising Hosanna. Come on. I love the word hallelujah, but I'm going to start exercising Hosanna because I love praising him for what he has done, but I'm going to start living for what he's doing. Come on, pick that up. I said, I love praising him, hallelujah, for what he's done. But I'm going to start living Hosanna, which means praise for what he's doing currently. The now time, the current time, the existing time, the present time. I love hallelujah and remembering, but I live in Hosanna in what he's doing. I love what he's done in my past, but I'm ready to walk into what he's doing right now. And the only way to get into that right now moment, hallelujah, is to pick up the anointing and the atonement that waits for me in the middle of my mess, in the middle of my problem, in the middle of my stress, in the middle of my hard time, in the middle of my tribulation, because there is the place where your love is tested. You can be victorious on the mountaintop anytime you want, but at the foothill of the Mount of Olives, down in the valley, is where your love is tested. It is easy to be brave from a distance. It is easy to love someone that you like. It is easy to give to someone who is kind to you. But it is difficult to face your cross head on. It was difficult for Jesus. He couldn't even carry it. He had to have help. It is difficult to love someone who hates you and despitefully uses you. But in the middle of that, Jesus did not die for just the people who would love him. He died for the entire world. He embraced the entire world. So the same people that worship him he died for are the same people that burn down his churches, that tear down his name, that blaspheme his images, that burned his Bibles, that destroyed his records, that cursed him because he was a Jew, and then cursed him because he was Jesus, and then cursed him because he was a Messiah, and then cursed him because he existed. He died for those people too. He atoned for those people that cursed him just as much as he atoned for those people that blessed him. Yeah. 
Because even the 12 ran from him. Even Peter, the one that saw him in his glorified body, denied him three times. So if the ones that were closest to Jesus ran from him when he fell, what do you expect when you fall? But as much as they ran from him, they ran back to him and they received him. So even though people bite your back when you fall, you have to receive them when you stand back up. I told you all you wouldn't like all of it. That's just what it is. I didn't say it was a happy message. I said it was the message. You want to know how to get out of Gethsemane? You have to do what Gethsemane did. You have to say, I know I'm a mess, and I see their mess, and that doesn't make it any better or worse. It just means we're in a mess together. And it doesn't make my mess smaller and their mess bigger. We're not measuring ourselves by how high we're raised up on a cross. We're measuring ourselves by the endurance because the scripture says it's not he that run the swiftest or the fastest, but he that endures through the end. Some time ago I taught on endurance faith. A stone does not see, nor does it move, but where you place it, there it will be. Some of us are called to be like stones, meaning I'm not called to go out into the world. I'm called to be a pillar and a foundation. And when you lay a set of stones up in a certain place in a certain fashion, they make a foundation. And a foundation, it takes great force to move it. And you cannot lift a foundation easily, especially one dug deep and wide. We say, why aren't we going out? You're not called to go out. You're called to be a foundation stone. And a foundation stone endures through the winter and through the spring and through the summer and through the fall and through the night and through the day and through all seasons and through all years. And the, the greatness of the building is depicted on the solidarity of the foundation. You cannot have a good building without a good foundation. So if you feel like you're not moving anywhere, you may not be called to move. You may be called to stand. Come on. If you feel like you're not moving in any direction, you may not be called to move. You may be called to stand. There's a foundation's wall that stands a testimony to the existence of a temple and it's been there over 2,000 years. And it is a testimony that there was a temple there. And it's a testimony that there's a foundation waiting for a new temple in a new kingdom in the kingdom of God in days to come. They call it the Wailing Wall. And those rocks have not moved since they have been placed. And they stand there as a testimony. And they were there in the time of the garden. And they'll be there in the time of the victory. The stones were there in the of the garden and they'll be there waiting in the midst of the victory so what kind of anointing are you going to pick up out of the garden hallelujah glory so I invite you this morning to anoint your head with oil to go into your garden place where you are separate from everyone else 
to wait for the atonement, the drops of blood to come upon your head because they were already shed at Calvary. But before they ever fell at Calvary, they fell in a garden. You were already made whole before he was ever whipped or bruised. Hallelujah. And to find that place, find that anointing where you can carry your cross so you can have your victory. Be blessed this morning in Jesus' name. Yeah.